0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. KMOX is at
1: your service. Welcome to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline. Now, here's your host, Mike Miller on KMOX. (laughs) KMOX.
2: That was impressive. Megan was supposed to hit it at 5600 and she did it. Wow. And one thing she wasn't able to get in on the news because the limitation on time is for anybody that's interested, this is national or is it international? World, World Naked Gardening Day. Whoa, party on. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. I don't know how she determines what she decides to be part of the news, but she, she was just talking about that, so I thought I'd spill the beans. Anyway, welcome to the Second Garden Second Hour of the Garden Hotline. I'll be giving you the tip of the trowel shortly, but right now you can call 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. You can get in line with your questions, comments or current concerns again thanks for having me on your show you can give a call we can talk about plant selection the ups and downs and all arounds pansies man the pansies woo they're still looking good even though it's gotten so hot at least the pansies that I'm growing the bulbs the daffodils the tulips they're whoa. it was neat to you know finally when spring got here we got about two full weeks of you know good bulb color. And now, for the most part, they the flowers are gone. The foliage is still good. Leave the foliage. Don't bend it over. Don't rubber band it. Don't do any of that kind of stuff. If you want to have any kind of chance or opportunity for the bulb to be built up, you know, strength-wise so it can possibly bloom next year. And that applies to any of them, whether it's crocus, whether it's grape hyacinths, whether it's daffodils, whether it's tulips, it doesn't matter. Speaking of bulbs— uh, I was walking back from the Snooks down at uh, Germania slash Hampton and Gravoy, and I looked in a yard, and there was some flowering onions. So I haven't seen flowering onions, you know, yet. So that's kind of a signal that, you know, springs over, and this is sort of the first sequence of, you know, summer bloomers. So, flowering onions were out, the uh, flags, the traditional iris are out, the spireas, the white flowered ones, the bridal veil types, they are just striking right now. So, if you have questions about your ground cover, your house plants, your lawn, your perennials, your roses, your trees, your shrubs, your vines, or water gardens, I'll share my thoughts, but please remember my answers, comments, and opinions is certainly not the only garden path to take, but strictly offered as an option to consider. Greg is producing, so when you call, he will ask your name and where you're calling from. So you can always say hi to him as well. Uh, during the week I do, and weekends, I do landscape consulting, where I, I call it a walk and talk. I come to your home, I help you solve problems, whether they're aesthetic or whether they're uh, you know real trouble or anything else. And uh, so you can go to my website, MikeMillerDesigns.com, the home page. That's where my email address and phone number is listed. And you can contact me. We can schedule a walk and talk. So um, I'll just share you know, my, wow, how long I've been doing this? A long, long time. Let's see. 77 is when I started the Botanical Garden. 87, 97, 2007, 2000. Over 40 years of experience. I'm getting so old. Anyway. So now a special recognition for individual group that's made an impression on me and is brought to you by St. Louis Composting, 636-861-3344. And the tip of the trial goes out to the Missouri Botanical Garden. They have something this year called Flora Borealis. So like Aurora Borealis, only this is Flora Borealis. It's a nighttime experience. It's going to start on June 29th, and it goes all the way through August 26th, and it's nightly, and it runs from like 7 to 11. The Botanical Gardens is located in South City, Shaw Boulevard, basically at 44, and Kings Highway and all that other stuff. That's just kind of a rough thing. But uh, the Botanical Garden, you can find out more information about this. You can go to flora. And what it is is a summer exhibit. This Flora Borealis is a nighttime experience you'll i mean there's all there's going to be all kinds of other things besides kind of the great quality that you think of the botanical garden there's going to be food and drinks you know for sale there's just it's a it really sounds like a cool event so it will be closed on Wednesdays in July but who cares that's a long time away but anyway so anyway what you need to do is just go to again Mobot, www.mobot.org slash flora for more information on Flora Borealis. So that sounds like something really, really neat. Let's go now to the phones and let's go to Joan. And Joan lives in Murfreesboro. Murfreesboro? Yeah, sorry, Joan. Hello. Hi.
3: Hi. I have some information, what I would call rescue information. Most of us grow our daffodil bulbs on a starvation diet. Yes. My husband had a special formula that what he used for fertilizing these bulbs. We have bulbs that are over 60 years old, still blooming beautifully. I let them get a little bit um, downhill after he paints away, but I fertilized them again last year. Beautiful blooms again this year. Perfect. High potash. Two parts potash. One part superphosphate and one part standard, like 12-12-12. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you want to individualize, fertilize one or two, put a little hole with a trowel or something down beside of them, put a spoonful or so of that fertilizer in there, and it helps a lot. Or you can, when you're going to move them, put a lot of fertilizer under them. Not high nitrogen and do not lime them. Absolutely. But he had over 200 different daffodils. He hybridized and grew them from seed to bloom size, and uh, also put on a couple of national accredited daffodil shows. So (laughs) I think he knew the secret to them.
2: Sounds perfect.
3: bloom for over 60 years, certain varieties will bloom. Other varieties are more the decorative um, display type, and they do not bloom as well. But if you fertilize them, they continue to bloom. They will come back from being totally dead.
2: That's that's fantastic, and, you know, nothing teaches like experience, so, I mean, they have these bulb boosters and all that other stuff, and kind of the chemistry of the bulb booster is very much like what your, you know, your husband's developed. It's too bad he wasn't a chemist. He could have made a fortune.
3: Uh, Well, he liked plants better. He spent... <laughs> Uh, about ninety years working with plants, and he dearly <laughs> loved them. I didn't have any commercial flowers, but I had beautiful, beautiful flowers everywhere. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that's great. He's like me. I like plants better than people, so I don't get—I don't do the garden hotline because I want to talk to people. I'm worried about your plants. I want to help your plants out. So your husband and I have very much in common.
3: And you also find that people who like plants are very nice people
2: too. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs>
3: Oh, <laughs> as far as me. That. Very <laughs> true. They're lovely right. people.
2: Great. Well, thanks, Joan.
3: very much, but I thought I'd give you a heads up on that because they will come back, and you can fertilize them just like regular flowers, but you need a special format. Bulbs with purchased from a volcanic area out in Oregon were the most beautiful, healthy bulbs we have ever seen, and that's when he found out how
2: to fertilize them. Great. Thank you very much. Greatly appreciate the insight. Mike Miller, KMOX Garden Hotline, back after these messages.
1: Welcome back to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline. Once again, here's Mike Miller on KMOX.
2: Yes, folks, any questions or concerns about your landscape or your houseplants or anything else? Definitely if you're just moving your houseplants out, Or you've already had them out. All of a sudden, you're starting to see the leaves scorch. Well, you put them in direct sun or too much sun. You thought, well, this area was I thought was shaded. Well, obviously it wasn't. So scorched leaves on houseplants, that indicates they're getting too much sun right now. Even the ones that are tolerant of, let's say, full sun, they got to be transitioned from your house. You say, well, you had it in front of a bright window. That doesn't make that much difference. Also, this past week, When I came back from, I had a a couple of consultations. My last one was in Collinsville. As I came home, I have a huge uh, or pretty big boxwood. It's, you know, five to six feet high, five to six feet wide. It's next to a cedar tree. I looked at this boxwood of mine. It was wilting. Now, this is a new growth, I realize, but it was wilting over. So I decided, whoa, I've never seen this boxwood wilt like this. And so consequently, that shows you how dry it had been. So what I did is on Wednesday, I went ahead and watered. Even though they were predicting 90% chance of rain on Thursday, I watered on Wednesday because I wanted to soften the ground up. That meant that the rain that did fall was going to penetrate deeper into the ground. There were some other things that were wilting, too. I have some pansies that are in full sun. Oh, they were pretty darn wilted. And, of course, with that hot, dry weather, then all the spring bulbs, flower-wise, went away. But consequently, the foliage still looks pretty darn good. But I, you know, I watered my lawn. I watered my shrubs. I watered everything on Wednesday, especially the areas in between, like the sidewalk and street. I have one area that's zoysia, and I wanted to make sure that it was going to be able to survive whatever happened. And then the other areas between the sidewalk and street, I have something called Creeping Jenny, yellow Creeping Jenny, which I call yellow moneywort, and a sedum acry. And they're really looking good. And they're drought tolerant, but still, I water them as well. So anyway, let's go to Jim's yard out in O'Fallon, Missouri. Hi, Jim.
4: Hi, how are you this morning, Mike? Very good. Uh, I know that pre-emergence, are supposed to stop crabgrass. What stops uh, dandelions from coming up? Anything, or do you just spray them after they
2: show up? You're probably then, better off to do with with dandelions a post-emergent. So, in other words, after they've already started growing control. Because those seeds, you know what dandelion seeds are, those fluffy things that blow all over the place. Mm-hmm. And try to anticipate where they are and to put a pre-emergent down with the idea that you're going to get them under control. Because those seeds... You know They may lay there for a long time before they germinate, but post-emergence control, so in other words, after they're growing, you can see right where they are, either hand-digging or using an herbicide is what I'd recommend.
4: All right. What about uh, I had some hostas that I planted beneath some pine trees, some mm-hmm. white pines, and they did real good for a couple of years. I guess the white pines, uh, that wasn't such a good idea to have the hostas under there?
2: Well, I mean, that may be a factor. It may be, you know— Generally it's you know it's fer- it's fairly acidic but that shouldn't impact the hostas. I have hostas underneath a mugo pine which is not you know a white pine by any means but my mugo pine is not as big as the white pines but you know consequently mine still look pretty darn good. So why they you know went downhill? It may be. Do you know what variety it was? Were they smaller leaf? Were they you know did they have a streak of white in them or anything?
4: Yeah, they were. They were the variegated hostas. Yeah. I think they call them. Right. I had a couple. I had a couple different kinds up there, and and man, the first couple of years they were under there, they did fantastic. Right. And they they didn't even come up this year.
2: Right. For the most, it may be a little bit premature. So don't get into a panic but the variegated ones are not nearly as hardy as the ones that you know have let's say the bigger leaves and have kind of the blue gray leaves or even the green leaves but the variegation really makes them a little bit weaker and also makes it so their lifespan is not quite as long unless you're a hosta nut and you have special bed spaces and all that other stuff
4: (laughs) no no that's not me all right thank you
2: (laughs) certainly now let's stay in O'Fallon to save some gas and go over to Bob's yard hi Bob
5: uh, good morning, uh, Mike. Since the Japanese beetles are uh, probably got their bags packed and on the <laughs> way, uh, what do you think about grub X products? And are they too late to put down?
2: Well, the Japanese beetle is a grub, so it's you know one of the five that we have in the ground. So I would not hesitate to put it down because I have not seen any obvious signs that the Japanese beetles or any of the grubs have emerged as adults. So there wouldn't be any problem putting it down. You know, from my perspective.
5: Very good. That's what I want to know. Thank you very much. Certainly.
2: Yeah, it's unfortunate. There's really, out of the five grubs that we have, one is the only one that does damage to bluegrass. A lot of them do other damage to plant materials and things like that, but they're all five different kinds of beetles. So thank you very much. And now let's go to New Baden, Illinois, and into Fred's yard. Hi, Fred. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. Uh, my question is, is concerning where I, where I work. We have a kind of a courtyard between two buildings, and it's about uh, 26 feet between the two buildings. I'd like to plant a small tree there, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, so the residents have something to kind of go out and sit under in the courtyard. But I don't know what to put in there that's going to stay within that 20 foot, you know, pretty close to it anyway. Right. Uh, height doesn't too much bother me, but it's just the width and so they can get under it. I don't want anything too short. Right. Well, anything that you put in is going to have lower branches initially, so you're going to have to do something called limbing it up so it will have more of an umbrella-slash-canopy-type look and so consequently provide the shade. But I would look at maybe, like, uh, some of the varieties of the Japanese maple, like Blood Good or Ever Red. Those are the ones that have the maroon leaves. Uh, even something, you know, as common as the Red Bud, that would be, you know, provide some shade, a little bit not as dense as a Japanese maple, but that would be an option. Maybe a variety of dogwood, not the native dogwood, but the Japanese dogwood called kusa, K-O-U-S-A dogwood. All three of those should, you know, infill that space, you know, pretty adequately for you. And then something that flowers in the summertime now, I don't know if they want if, or if you want a flowering summer thing, uh, it's called golden rain tree. It flowers in the summertime with yellow flowers.
4: Golden rain tree. Right. Okay. Well, thank you very much.
2: Certainly. Good luck with that. And, oh, and one other thing, uh, fragrant magnolia that blooms in the summertime, Sweet Bay Magnolia. That would be another one to add to the list. What's the name of it again? Sweet Bay Magnolia.
4: Sweet Bay
2: Magnolia. Magnolia. Right. Thank you. Yep. Mike Miller, K M O S Garden Hotline, back after these messages.
1: Welcome back to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline. Once again, here's Mike Miller on KMOX.
2: Yes, folks, questions or concerns about your landscape, your yard, your lawn, your plant material. Pansies, we should still have another couple weeks of the pansies looking spectacular. Mine are bigger than I've ever imagined them or that I can ever remember. You know, maybe I can't even remember a full year. But they seem to be just structurally much bigger. Now, I have to be honest with you. My pansies, I've been fertilizing about every three weeks. So, and I mean, the rewards of the fertilizing has, that looks really, really good. So I'm very happy with the way they look. And uh, the ground is warm enough now that you can certainly start thinking about heading If you want to get some tropical plants, if you want to get some annuals, if you want to get some vegetables, herbs, stuff like that, it's a good time to start getting them in the ground because the ground is warm enough. It's going to encourage the root systems to start moving out, and that's what hardiness is all about. So above-ground growth, that's spectacular. That's great. But if it doesn't have the below-ground growth, the root systems... the above-ground growth is going to go downhill no matter what it looks like when it initially starts out. So if you have any questions, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. Let's go out to St. Charles, and we're going into Daryl's yard. Hi, Daryl.
1: Hey, Mike. How Hi. are you today? Very good. Hey, uh, on behalf of everybody in metro area, thank you for your show and all of your experience and tips that you give us.
2: <laughs> well, so. thanks for having me on your show.
1: <laughs> um, I need your experience on laying sod. Um, I want to I have an existing backyard that's got some bad spots and a side yard. So, my question is do I need to use a sod cutter on it or can I use a tiller to till that area is over and then put compost down? Can you give me the uh the step by step to do?
2: Sure. Now, the bad spots mean it's just an area where the grass is not growing or is an area that is totally infested with weeds?
1: Uh, it's grass is not growing. It's like 50% grass and 50% dirt.
2: Okay. So now can you figure out why there's, you know, I mean, there, the lawn is not getting thick there. Is there a big tree close by? Is there something like that? Because the reason why I'm asking this is, you could do go to all this trouble, and then you may just be, you know, kind of recreating a a similar scenario that in two or three years you're going to end up right back where you are.
1: Sure, sure. on On the side yard, yes, there is four gumball trees on that side, right? That area, so. Uh, in the in the backyard, no, it's just open grass.
2: Okay, so where the sweet gum trees are, uh, you're you're never going to have great success there. So I wouldn't spend my money, okay. time, or energy personally. Now, certainly, okay. the best way to do it is to basically get a sod cutter if you can, cut, you know, if you want to do that, and get everything okay. taken out. Work the soil up that's existing, add some compost with that, and then lay the new sod down on top of that. And then with the new sod, you're probably going to have to water at least every day, depending upon temperature, uh, okay. probably for a couple weeks to make sure the root system established. How can you tell the root system's established on sod? Well, you just go out there after a week or so and just kind of gently tug on it, lift it up, and see if you can start to see it resisting. So, in other words, that means the root system okay. of the sod is headed into the ground.
1: Okay. Okay. All right. And then. It- How thick of a layer of compost do I put down? Probably
2: about one to two inches. And you know, St. Louis Composting. I'm sure other places sell compost may have the same thing. They have one really specifically for this. They you know they use it for top dressing over, let's say, core aeration and things like that. But it's you know, premium field and turf is the best one.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah, you've talked about that that before. Right. Okay. Okay. All right, sir. All right, thank you very much.
2: Yes, good luck with that, and, yeah, I mean, get it done as soon as you possibly can, because even sod, I, what kind of uh, sod are you putting down?
1: I was going to put zoysia down.
2: Okay, that, and that, I mean, you, ideal, let's put it that way. As far as doing it this, you know, I don't want to say this late, but heading into summertime, you know, sod from fescues and bluegrasses could have a real difficult time, even if the root system gets established because they don't like the hot weather, but great.
1: Okay, all right, sir. Thank you very much
2: certainly, and now let's go to from St. Charles down to Arnold and into Mike's yard. Hi Mike. Good morning hi.
1: I have a
5: lilac that is about eight foot tall uh, has complete exposure to morning sun on the southwest side the blossoms moderate on the uh, northeast side no blossoms whatsoever any way I can get more blossoms out of that bush.
2: Uh, It sounds like location more so than anything else. Lilacs like to be in full sun all day long, every day. Now, also, you know, how old is this? About eight years. Yeah, eight years shouldn't be that old. But what you could do is try to do some pruning. So, in other words, the air... If you have any kind of, you know, let's say canes or stems coming up out of the ground that are more than two inches in diameter, I would cut those out as close to the ground level as you possibly can get. So in other words, they're past the time, at least with this particular shrub in this particular location when they're going to flower. But ideally, this is not the best spot for a lilac. Also, is there... I mean, as far as soil pH, they like an alkaline soil. It's one of the few plants that do. I'm not saying there's not many, but there are just a few. So alkaline soil, so in other words, a little bit of lime around it may help. So those are one of the other factors that you might think of as well. But to me, it sounds like there's more, you know, more, too much shade for it to do well.
5: No, uh, it probably, it's on the side of the house where she, they gets sun, probably until about uh, 2, 3 o'clock. But w- one of the things I was kind of wondering, the canes that are coming out, uh, the first three foot of growth, there's no leaves on them at all.
2: Right. That's a natural habit. The lilacs just don't have any foliage close to the ground whatsoever. Okay. So even if you buy one out of a production nursery that, you know, got national awards for growing lilacs, it's not going to be any different. They're going to be basically naked at the bottom and leaves at the top. So in other words, it's going to be kind of like an umbrella.
5: So put some lime on it uh, a little bit.
2: Yeah. Okay. And just, just to kind of change the pH, see if that will help. And... uh that's about all you're going to be able to do. So if it's if it's getting from let's say sunrise, which this time of year is like six a.m., all the way to two thirty, that's like you know eight and a half hours of pretty good sun, I would assume. So it, that should be adequate sun for it to you know do okay. So I you know I mean it's a it's sort of a tough call. Maybe it's the soil pH, but any of the canes coming up out of the ground, if you have any of them that are bigger than two inches, cut those out.
5: None whatsoever. Okay. okay. Thank you very much for right. your help. I appreciate
2: it. Certainly, yeah. It's a, I mean, lilacs, sometimes we try to do too much. There's a lilac right down the street from me, and the lady does take care of her yard. I don't, you know, I'm not going to fool you, but I mean, it is spectacular, and it's been flowering for like three weeks now. And then somebody else up, you know, a different street, their lilac was spectacular, and then it just started going downhill and went downhill further and further, and finally they just finally cut it completely out so now let's go to Benton, Illinois. And Mary, how are you today?
4: I'm, I'm good, Mike. My problem is uh, Norway spruce. It's been luxurious and beautiful and, and happy where it is. And in the last week, it's, ju- it's just dying in front of our eyes. I've called everybody. I can't imagine what it could be. I mean, it seems to be too early for bagworms.
2: Oh, it wouldn't be bagworms.
4: And it, it, it's, it's not Japanese beetles. We don't. It, it's 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 lost its its uh, needles. A lot of them. I'd say it's what it's it's ten or fifteen years old. probably okay. Twenty five or thirty feet high. I can't imagine. We're just sick about it.
2: Yeah, my guess. And this is strictly a guess. Is there's a disease called anthracnose? Okay. And usually it impacts this. You know, the pines more so than the spruces. But it's a disease that beetles. If they're on a tree that has this disease and they happen to fly over and get onto your tree, even though they're not going to eat anything, they're not going to necessarily cause damage themselves, they can inoculate your tree with this anthracnose. And if it is anthracnose, what it is, it's a disease that gets into the veins of the tree and it can kill them really, really fast. When I worked at the Botanical Garden, there were some Austrian pines that got anthracnose. And I saw them within just a couple months, like from May until July, they went from what appeared to be fairly healthy, you know, needled and everything else, to v- v- being totally dead. So, yeah. so I'm guessing that's what it is. And there's really not t- any kind of treatment, nothing that you can do to prevent it. You know, I mean, injection-wise or anything else, once it's in there, it's going to be sort of like a death call.
4: I see. Yeah, it, it appears that way. It's just in a week's time, it's just it's just amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for your program. We watch it. We listen all the time.
2: Well, thank you for having me on your show. And the only other thing is, if there's been some major problems in or major changes in the let's say landscape topography, and there's too much water sitting around the base of the tree, it could have drowned. But that's usually not going to cause that kind of impact that much uh, that quickly. Mike Miller, Wash Garden Hotline, back after these messages.
1: This is the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline with your host, Mike Miller, on KMOX.
2: Yes, folks, we've got about eight minutes to go. And then at 10 o'clock, Investing Sense with Andy Smith and Bob Richards. 11 o'clock, the Helotech Foundation Repair Home Improvement Show with Scott Mosby. Then at 12.20, Amron Total Access Pregame Show with Alex Ferraro. So that's coming up, and that's all before the Cardinals in the Cubs game, let's go to South County into Nancy's yard. Hi, Nancy.
4: Um, hi, Mike. Love your show. Um, I have three pin oaks in the backyard. They're about 35 years old and one in the front yard. The three in the backyard are covered with hundreds of balls.
3: Ooh. Um,
4: they're leasing out this year, even though I can tell some of the branches up in the top are, are dead. Um, I wondered if there's anything we can do about that. Um, I've they have some lawn people or garden people look at it, and they suggest just taking the trees out. Um, and then the one in the front yard only has, like, two galls in it, and I'm trying to prevent, you know, that one from getting the galls and losing that tree as well.
2: Well, uh, you know, to be honest with you, the galls don't kill. So the branches that are dying are not necessarily unless you've got a huge amount of galls on there on each individual branch then that could cause some problems but individually you know the galls are not de- you know they're not deadly to a tree if it's health- healthy overall. So the branches you're seeing that are not leafing out or not you know that don't look good all trees and especially trees as they get older you know have something called deadwood so you might have a tree service come out take all the deadwood out you know make an analysis if the you know you should take the trees out but if you have three huge major trees To take them all out, that's, you know, it's going to be trouble. But the galls are really problematic from lots of different standpoints. As far as once there's so many on uh, individual branch, the weight of the galls cause cracks here and there. Then water gets in there. Then it causes heartwood rot. So it can be a trigger for, let's say, a downhill slide. But the galls in and of themselves are generally not, let's say, killers.
4: well, we have some smooth ones and then some with the little spikes on them. But, I mean, there's just hundreds of them up in the tree. And when the wind blows, they snap off some of the branches. And and then there'll be five or six clustered, you know, in one area. Right. Um, And as far as the one in the front yard, is there a danger of that spreading to the the one in the front? Because we could probably cut the two... You know, branches off, they're low enough um, that have the galls. It's just like I said, two random galls on the front tree.
2: Right. Basically what it is is an insect, a flighted insect. The female lands on the tree, lays eggs. Then when those eggs hatch, they bore into the stem or the branch. And then consequently, it causes when they do that, they're creating this bloated thing, which is the gall. And that's just to kind of protect them through their life while they're going through from larvae to this to that before they become adults and then emerge away, you know, from that gall. So that's what it is. It's an insect. So the insects could get to the other ones, you know, the one in your front yard, even though it seems like there's not that many. If they blow and, you know, decide to go, you know, to, let's say, inhabit the one in the front yard. So will they
4: actually, because you can almost crack them open. They're really hard. Right. So there's a. Bug inside there?
2: Well, generally the ones that you know, fall to the ground are usually not, the, they're already exited from that. Oh, wow, okay. So it's the ones that are kind of, let's say, up in the tree that are still in place, That you know, but you're not really going to be able to, if you want to climb up in a tree, you might be able to find one, but you're not going to find them on the ground.
4: Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, because, I mean, the wind blows and there'll be, you know, 40, 50 on the ground. I'm out there every other day trying right. to pick them on the. Floor. So, all right, well, thank you for your help.
2: Certainly, and now let's go from South County to Florissant into Carol's yard. Hi, Carol.
4: Hey, Carol. Uh, Hi, Mike. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I have two questions I'm asking about ivy and, um, uh, well, we'll ask about ivy first. So I've got a hill in the back, and I put green English ivy out there because it was just too hard to mow. There's tree roots and grass wasn't growing, and at first it was doing really well, and I've got some kind of big decorative rocks. And, of course, the ivy loves the rocks. And they're, it's going up the trees. But I've got bald spots on the hill. But I see these long brown shoots.
2: Basically what's happened is those long those long shoots, that ivy has gotten old and only has, let's say, leaves on the end of the, let's say, stem that you're seeing. So you need to get some new ivy and plant it in the spots where you see these long shoots with no leaves on it.
4: Okay. And then I have Vinca around my mailbox that's kind of got a bald spot, too. And it was doing great. Do I need to clean that
2: out? Uh, Not necessarily. Yeah, you're talking about Vinca that has the blue flower in the springtime? Yes. So basically, any any kind of area that's open, just get some new plants and stick them in that spot. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Certainly. And now let's go to O'Fallon, Missouri. And Georgia, how are you?
6: Good morning, Mike. I'm fine. Uh, quick question: uh, My sister had two mature elm trees in her front yard, full sun. Uh, they were both taken down because they were uh, the heart, heartwood was rotten, so both trees had to come down.
4: Mm-hmm.
6: Uh, the stumps were ground, but they're they're cut off pretty close to the surface of the soil. Right. Uh, I understand that probably grass will not grow there for years. She's wondering, she's wondering if she can raise a bed there of some kind and put something in there that will actually grow.
2: Yeah, it's going to be tough right over that because, you know, just the wood factor and everything else. But if she wants to try to, you know, do a creative raised bed with, you know, some plant material other than lawn or something like that, it's going to be somewhat iffy, at least for the first couple of years, because the, even though the stone's been ground, there's still a lot of wood underneath there, and as that sort of starts dying out that wood of the underground root systems and everything else, that can cause some problems. Anything that's growing in close proximity to where that main trunk was.
6: Okay. Uh, she was thinking about cannas, and I are they deep-rooted and
2: they won't have a chance? Uh, well, cannas, I mean, something like that, uh, you know, you could probably do it, but, uh, you know, with the cannas, maybe uh, give it a try. But uh, I would at least get four inches of, you know, let's say a topsoil compost mix or something along that line, over the top of where this stump was removed.
6: Okay. So if she had more than four, uh, more soil, better the chance?
2: Yeah. I mean, oh. you're just adding to it, so, you know, let's say, but four would be probably the minimum I'd fool with, because cannas, even though they grow at the surface, they're still going to send root systems a little bit deeper.
6: Okay. One other quick question, please. Uh, I have robins that are... Uh, Taking over our underneath our deck. Do you have any suggestions how to discourage them? <laughs> we have sixteen little hidey holes that they can build nests in, and they're almost all full at this point.
2: Wow, you got a nice house, apparently. Now I don't know. You know, maybe put some kind of netting after they sort of exit with all the young and everything else. Some netting around the underside of your deck to keep them from being able to fly up underneath it.
6: Okay. Well, there, there's an open spot there. Uh, my. Brother-in-law suggested a rubber snake. Would that work?
2: No, they don't care about rubber snakes. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) you're
6: not gonna fool them, huh?
0: No. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Is
6: there any kind of uh, spiky product that I could put in there? Because I think they'd probably just build. It's so protected. It's really a good place for them. Uh, But they're just so
2: messy. I would probably, you know, just get a big wad of like, uh, let's say. Uh, Let's see, a scouring pad or something like that, the metal kind, you know, thats you use to clean pans and something like that. Maybe stuff a couple of those in all these locations.
6: Oh, okay. They don't like that, huh?
2: Right. I would give it a try. I've never really, you know, known it to be effective, but uh, that would be what I'd choose. All right. Thank you, Mike. Yep. And sorry, folks, it looks like I'm not going to be able to get any more calls. So Craig, May, and Mary... I think the Garden Hotline will be on next week, at least I hope it will be. But you never know the way the world changes. Please get out there and start really looking around very closely, whether it's a weed problem or anything else. Mike Miller, KMWs Garden Hotline,
0: back after next week. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too